Good evening and welcome to NTD News. I'm Stephanie Cox. Here are today's top stories. Today, residents of the town where 26 people were killed at Sandy Hook Elementary School commemorated the 10th anniversary at a new memorial. Parents of the victims say they found a way to prevent more shootings. Various attorneys general say TikTok is dangerous for young teens and that they shouldn't have access to it. We hear from an educational psychologist about the potential dangers for children and for national security. Should Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas be impeached? A former Border Patrol chief who served under both Democrats and Republicans weighs in. More than two months past due, lawmakers agree on a government funding bill for 2023, though Republicans are split over whether to quash the bill or jam it through in the 11th hour. And the vast majority of colleges in the U.S. reportedly restrict students' speech to some extent. We hear from a watchdog group about their findings. It's been 10 years since a group of young children at Sandy Hook Elementary School and their teachers were killed in Newtown, Connecticut. Today, parents and survivors remembered and paid respects. NTD's Arlene Richards reports. A decade after a school massacre that's been deemed the worst in U.S. history, residents of the Connecticut town where it took place commemorated it with vigil and reflection. Nicole Hockley remembers searching for her son, Dylan. And I said, where's the rest of the class? And they said, I don't know. People started saying, tell us what's happening. What's, what's going on? Because we still had had really no information. And then she learned her son was killed. He said... If you are still waiting here, then the person you're waiting for isn't coming back. Mark Barden's son, Daniel, was killed while hiding in the closet of his first grade class. On Wednesday, these parents and other residents of Newtown marked the 10th anniversary of that day at a new memorial. Mass shooter Adam Lanza killed 20 children and six educators on December 14, 2012. He took his own life afterward. Since then, Hockley and Barden started a nonprofit that tries to find ways to prevent school shootings. They train students to report warning signs in social media posts to a trusted adult. Eleven school shootings that were imminent did not happen because the students trained in our Say Something program told their trusted adult and, and it was intervened upon. Despite the successes, there have been more school shootings. Last May, 19 children and two teachers were killed at Robb Elementary in Uvalde, Texas. And at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland, Florida, 17 people were killed and 17 more injured in February 2018. This year, President Biden signed federal gun legislation. At a Sandy Hook commemoration last week, he said this. Together, Together we made some important progress. Most significant gun law passed in 30 years, but still not enough. Biden vowed to ban so-called assault weapons. Arlene Richards, NTD News, New York. And lawmakers from both sides of the aisle are trying to ban video platform TikTok from operating in the U.S. At the same time, a number of attorneys general want providers to raise the app's age limit. Next, we hear about the dangers the app potentially poses. Senator Marco Rubio on Tuesday introduced a bill in the Senate that would ban TikTok from operating in the U.S. Meanwhile, in the House, two congressmen introduced a bipartisan companion bill. 
The lawmakers are concerned about TikTok's parent company, ByteDance, and its affiliation with the Chinese regime. The fear is that the app could be used to spy on or censor Americans. This week, Tennessee became the latest state to ban the app from government devices. On Tuesday, 15 state attorneys general sent letters to Google and Apple, which provide platforms where users download the app. Apple users have to be at least 12 years old to download TikTok, but the attorneys general say the app's content qualifies it for Apple's 17-plus rating. They write, exposure to drug, alcohol, and tobacco content on social media makes kids more likely to use or experiment with those illicit substances in real life. And exposure to sexual content on TikTok can lead to pornography addiction and even the sexual exploitation of kids by online predators. Others say this kind of content can affect kids' character. TikTok will affect their values. It will affect the way they expect the world to work. Dr. Kathy Cook is an educational psychologist and the founder of Celebrate Kids. She agrees with the attorneys general on the idea of raising the age limit, suggesting it even be raised to 21. However, she says parents could also take more initiative. We don't need an attorney state general to say to Google and Apple, change the age limit. I'm glad they're doing that. I think it's wise. I think it's inappropriate what's going on. But I want to say to the parents and grandparents who are listening and the young people who might be listening, we can be in charge of our own heart and mind. We don't need the government to tell us what to do. The less harmful content American users see on TikTok includes pranks, comedic content, and similar trends. Dr. Cook says the company's algorithm shows Chinese users different content. They show them science, technology, math, reading, literature. They want us to be dumbed down. They are controlling us, and it's dangerous. I mean, I am concerned about the national security issue as well. I think that is a legitimate issue. It's evil, and, and we know it if they won't let their own citizens experience what they're feeding us. NTD reached out to TikTok for comment, but didn't hear back before broadcast. Reporting by Arian Pazdar, NTD News. And yesterday, House Republicans called for the impeachment of Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas. Those who oppose his impeachment say Mayorkas is doing a good job and that the southern border is secure. NTD hears from a former Border Patrol chief who served under both Republican and Democrat administrations. For more. On Tuesday, House Republicans announced their plans to impeach Department of Homeland Security Alejandro Mayorkas. Our border is an absolute, complete nightmare, and it's on his watch. He regularly lies to the American people, claiming that the southern border is closed. I've been there. It's wide open. Mayorkas appears to see things differently, as seen in his testimony last month. Secretary Mayorkas, do you continue to maintain that the border is secure? Yes, and we are working day in and day out to enhance its security, Congressman. Right. So forth. I just wanted to understand that that's your position still. I think it is, a, uh, it is a, a, a position that denies reality. My focus is really on the truth. NTD heard from senior distinguished fellow at the Texas Public Policy Foundation, Rodney Scott. He's also a former Border Patrol chief who served under both Republican and Democrat administrations. And he says Mayorkas should be impeached. But I believe the strongest argument is that he blatantly lied under oath to Congress. The border is not secure. I am hoping that through the hearings, having impeachment hearings, that you bring in, that, that Congress brings in career professionals, non-politicals, and they ask them questions about the border in a way that's televised and America can see that's not politicized. I think if America really knew what was going on on the border, it, it'd scare the heck out of most people, and they would want action. 
On the other hand, House Democrats released the following message in response to calls for Mayorkas to be impeached. Secretary Mayorkas has steadfastly led the department through significant challenges over the last two years, including managing the flow of migrants across the southwest border while treating migrants fairly and humanely. It is unjust for House Republicans to once again engage in political theatrics instead of working with Democrats to address the many challenges facing the American people. We reached out to the DHS and will include their comment when they respond. You can watch the full interview with Rodney Scott on NTD's The Nation Speaks with Cindy Drewcare this Saturday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time. Jason Perry, NTD News. Lawmakers on Capitol Hill have reached a bipartisan agreement on a government funding bill. But some are decrying the last-minute sprint to push the bill through both chambers just before a new Congress is sworn in. We have our Melina Weiskup with us to break it down. So government funding runs out this Friday, so lawmakers are passing another short-term extension um, while the full bill for 2023 is still being worked on. Senate Leader Chuck Schumer today expressing optimism that they're making progress. We still have a long way to go, but a framework is a big step in the right direction. But some Republicans see it as quite the opposite. This last minute sprint has led to a number of Republicans to oppose this effort for a number of reasons. One of those reasons being what they call a lack of transparency and no time to debate. Like we're down here basically in a fake debate. That's what we all know. I mean, the truth is not like we have a body, the chamber filled here with human beings debating this $1.7 trillion. And these same points were echoed by some Senate Republicans today, uh, specifically a group including Senators Rick Scott, Mike Lee, and others have repeatedly split with Senate leadership on this. They have called on Republican leadership in the Senate to pass a short-term funding bill that would expire early into next year. This way, Republicans would have more control over what goes in this bill. So the real question is here is why would Republican leadership in the Senate not want to go in this direction because it would ultimately give them more control over this government funding bill. While some in leadership, specifically Senator Roy Blunt, has said that they don't want to put too much pressure on a newly elected Republican majority, especially with such a slim margin that they'll be working with in the House. And this is even more the case as we see some frictions break out already um, in the Republican Party in the House over whether or not to elect Leader McCarthy to that speakership position. I asked Leader McCarthy about this specifically, and he says that he believes that Republicans in the House are at least united on the most basic fronts. Well, like anything you walk through, it's you're going to have debate. What's in this legislation that actually lowers the price of gasoline and makes America energy independent? But uh, since Democrats do control the majority in the House, it's unlikely to be successful there. The only chance Republicans do have at success is for a majority of Senate Republicans to take a hard line on this. But right now, it's not looking like that's the case. So we could very well see Congress pass a trillion and a half dollar government funding bill next week, just before Christmas. Reporting in Washington, D.C., Melina Weiskup, NTD News. As China expands its influence in Africa, the U.S. is now catching up. President Biden announced new investments in Africa, vowing to strengthen ties. NTD's Iris Tao has more. The United States is all in on Africa's future. 
President Biden welcoming nearly 50 leaders from Africa on Wednesday for a summit in Washington. The gathering, the first of its kind in six years, aims to reset Washington's commitment to the African continent, where China is competing for influence. This forum is about building connections. It's about closing deals. And above all, it's about the future, our shared future. Right before the meeting, the administration announced $55 billion in economic aid. It's also voicing support for the African Union to join the group of 20 major economies. And Biden today pitching to African leaders on the benefits of closer economic ties. This enormous opportunity, an enormous opportunity for Africa's future, and the United States wants to help. Biden's speech focuses on one of the weakest elements of America's engagement with Africa, a trade relationship that has plunged sharply over the past decade. All of this as China competes for influence on the continent. It has surpassed the U.S. as Africa's largest trading partner. And many of the leaders invited today have gotten years of infrastructure investment from the communist regime. The Biden administration called out China in a report this year for trying to use Africa to challenge international order and advance Beijing's own geopolitical interests. But the White House this week wouldn't say if Biden would be warning African leaders over Beijing's ambitions. It's not going to be about other countries. It's not going to be attempting to compare contrast. It's rather going to be about the affirmative agenda that the United States has to bring to bear with Africa. The White House was also posed with a question of if the summit will be just a formality, that after it's over, everyone will just go home and go back to business as usual. But the Biden administration says that won't happen as it's appointing a special representative for summit implementation, whose job is to make sure that what comes out of the summit is implemented. Reporting in Washington, D.C., Iris Tao, NTD News. And turning now to higher education and free speech at college campuses. A watchdog group found that the vast majority of schools across the U.S. have policies that restrict student speech. Our reporter spoke with the group that made the findings. The Watchdog Group Foundation for Individual Rights and Expression, or FIRE for short, describes itself as an organization committed to defending rights of Americans to free speech. On Tuesday, the group published its annual report called The Spotlight on Speech Codes, where it analyzes policies at almost 500 colleges and ranks them in colors, red, yellow, and green. Their homepage states that a red light institution maintains at least one policy that both clearly and substantially restricts freedom of speech or bars public access to its speech-related policies by requiring a university login and password for access, while a yellow light institution maintains policies that could too easily be applied to suppress protected speech. Over the past decade, FIRE found that more and more colleges have moved from red into yellow. Laura Belts is the director of policy reform at FIRE. She tells NTD there are multiple reasons the situation has been getting better. One of them is that uh, there used to be quite prevalent a lot of policies that we called free speech zone policies that would restrict students to a small out of the way area on campus and say that's the only place you're allowed to conduct expressive activities. Uh, but in the past decade, about half of states across the country have banned those sorts of policies. She says another reason is that policies banning offensive speech are decreasing. However, only 12% of the schools reviewed managed to end up in the green category. Colleges are able to restrict speech with specific policies, such as ones against offensive language, ones that restrict students' right to protest, and more. 
Legally, private institutions are allowed to restrict students' speech, but Belt says many of those institutions advertise free speech. So we hold the private schools that promise free speech to those First Amendment standards. If if they're going to promise free speech, they can't have it both ways and then and then restrict free speech and other policies. She adds that FIRE offers to work with schools to revise policies. Reporting by Arian Pazdar, NTD News. And coming up, we take a look at the shadow state, a deep dive inside the ESG industry, a film that's asking big questions. Will these banking and tech giant government partnerships bring us a cleaner, more peaceful and equitable future? And what are the risks? And at the World Cup, France and Morocco played a thrilling semi-final match. Meanwhile, an autopsy reveals how the late soccer journalist Grant Wall died. That more coming up. One of the big three investment firms, BlackRock, is reportedly planning to make a slew of leadership changes, according to a memo seen by Reuters. The report comes amid growing pressure to remove the firm's chief executive, Larry Fink. Just Friday, North Carolina's treasurer, Dale Falwell, joined officials in nearly half the states in the country in protesting Wall Street's investment strategy called ESG. State officials are pulling billions of dollars out of companies like BlackRock over their involvement in the environmental, social and governance industry. A new documentary by the Epic Times takes a deep dive inside ESG, an emerging multi-trillion dollar power structure that's uniting governments with corporations. How does it work? What are its goals? And who's driving it? The Shadow State explores. In America, Politics and business are two separate worlds. Politicians make laws, CEOs make profits. But now, that's all changing. How does it work? And how will it change our lives? Are we bending Wall Street to our will, or are we the ones who will be manipulated? Earlier today, I spoke with the man behind the documentary and also in front of the camera, Kevin Stocklin, for his insights. Kevin Stocklin, welcome to our show. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Now, to start with environmental social governance, ESG, could you explain it in simple terms for our viewers? Sure. Well, it's two things. It's an ideology and it's an industry. So as an ideology, it's an umbrella term. It includes environmentalism, fighting climate change, social justice. They've even expanded it to include things like gun control, um, abortion rights uh, as well. So th that's really the ideology of it. Now, it's also an industry. It's a $55 trillion industry um, centered on Wall Street. And it's a way of effectively using uh, shareholder money, investment money to uh, pressure corporations to get in line with this ideology. Proponents see ESG as a way to solve shared problems using capitalism. But in your documentary, The Shadow State, you also found concern among critics that ESG fosters fascism. Could you tell me more about that? 
Yeah, you know, I mean, fascism is a, is a term that we kind of hate to use. It's It's been kind of beaten to death these days. But uh, what it means conceptually is really that you can retain private control of corporations as an owner, but you really are compelled to follow uh, state ideology in terms of your operations. So uh, it's more similar to the China model of um, independent ownership, uh, but uh, following state directives in terms of how the corporation is run. Under capitalism, a corporation should be run to serve its customers and to produce better products and cheaper products to serve the customers. This is a shift. This is basically corporations uh, shifting their goals to serve ideological concepts and, you know, under ESG, environmental, social, etc. And we've already seen governments working with and pressuring companies to cancel or otherwise punish customers based on ESG-type criteria. And you found indications that ESG criteria could become part of our personal credit scores. What would that look like? Yeah, absolutely. Well, so there's already ESG ratings for companies, for countries, and even for U.S. states. So the question is, when do we start reaching down to the personal level? And we're already seeing credit cards starting to do this. So, for example, Visa and MasterCard now have voluntary credit cards that you can get that will track your carbon emissions. Everything you buy, everywhere you travel, everything that goes on the card, they will tally up the emissions that come out of that. So the other area where it could come in is uh, you, if you want to get a mortgage. Well, how environmentally friendly is your house? Does it use solar panels or does it use oil and gas for heating? Um, and you could potentially see uh, different scores, different um, interest rates based on your credit rating that way. In addition, we're now seeing uh, credit card companies tracking gun purchases. So any purchase made at a gun store is now going to be tracked with the goal of handing that information over to the federal government. Uh, so these are all the ways that it's now reaching down into a personal level in addition to all of the increasing costs that we're seeing at the gas pump and, and the grocery store, et cetera. And there's also indications that these policies may not be reaching the intended goals that they've set out to reach. Yeah, absolutely. And that's one of the questions that we pose in the documentary. So there, there's, there's virtually no evidence that uh, they're doing anything to reduce carbon emissions through this, this whole ESG industry and the funds. And so the question is, well, if you can't demonstrate that we're reducing carbon emissions, what's it all for? And that's a question that we pose to a lot of the participants in the film. You're a writer, film producer, and a former investment banker. What's your personal connection to this topic? Um, you know, I do have a background in finance. For me, the, the interesting thing about uh, ESG is that th th this is a clash of ideologies. So we, uh, as Americans, were raised with the idea that we get to elect our representatives to Congress and state legislatures, and, and this is how we get to decide all of these important questions about race, about in the environment, et cetera, et cetera. Um, this ideology believes that uh, it's better that these decisions be made in the World Economic Forum, at the United Nations, in corporate boardrooms. And so uh, this is really going on in a way that people don't see and they don't understand. And what I wanted to do in this documentary is explain how the systems work, you know, show who the players are, how these decisions are made, how they're affecting our lives, and really shed light on it so that people become aware of what's going on uh, that is affecting their lives so dramatically, you know, in, in every way. All right. The name of that documentary, The Shadow State, well worth the watch. Thank you so much, Kevin Stockman. Really appreciate your time.
thank you for having me. I appreciate it. A U.S. citizen has been released as part of a prisoner exchange between Russia and Ukraine. White House National Security Spokesman John Kirby made the announcement earlier today. Kirby didn't release additional details, citing privacy concerns. The head of Ukraine's presidential administration earlier identified the American as Suwedi Murakhezi. Kirby also said the war is not likely to wind down before year's end. And now over to sports news. Here's NTD's Dave Martin with today's top stories. Thank you, Steph. U.S. soccer journalist Grant Wall died of an undetected aortic aneurysm, according to his wife, Dr. Celine Gounder. Dr. Gounder shared the autopsy results on Wall's websites, adding, quote, the chest pressure he experienced shortly before his death may have represented the initial symptoms. No amount of CPR or shocks would have saved him. His death was unrelated to COVID. His death was unrelated to vaccination status. There was nothing nefarious about his death. The 49-year-old Wall said he felt ill while covering the World Cup and eventually collapsed in his seat at the stadium early Saturday morning during the Netherlands-Argentina match. Emergency workers treated him on the spot, but to no avail. Wall was a writer for Sports Illustrated for more than two decades and served as a soccer analyst for Fox Sports. He made headlines early at the World Cup when he reported that stadium security in Qatar briefly detained him for wearing a shirt with a rainbow. And in baseball news, the San Francisco Giants have reportedly signed 28-year-old free agent shortstop Carlos Correa to a record-breaking 13-year, $350 million contract Tuesday night. Now, as far as the amount goes, this is the biggest in free agency history and third biggest overall, while the length ties Bryce Harper's for the longest ever. The two-time All-Star spent last year with the Twins after spending his first seven seasons in Houston. And for your sports viewing schedule tonight, the NBA has a 10-game slate prepared featuring the defending champion Golden State Warriors, who struggled mightily on the road, playing at the Indiana Pacers. And finally, for you hockey fans, the NHL has a triple header planned featuring four of the six remaining Canadian squads as Montreal plays at Ottawa and Calgary hosts Vancouver. And that's it for sports. Back to you, Steph. Thanks, Dave. And an update from the World Cup. France has eliminated underdog Morocco with a 2-0 win to advance to the finals. The French team will face Argentina on Sunday for the championship. And that's all for today's news. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Stephanie Cox. Good night.